The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here are your top five at five. Stocks looking to build on their strong start to 2021. Markets are hovering at all-time highs, but the futures this morning, they're in the red. Pressure continuing to mount on President Trump. As lawmakers in the House, they begin their efforts to remove him from office, the very latest from Washington. The president also facing a crackdown, I'm blocking it, but facing a crackdown from some big tech companies all across Silicon Valley. They're pulling the plug on his online presence. And right here, speeding up the vaccine rollout, officials across the country looking to overcome hurdles as the U.S. hits new bleak milestones in the COVID-19 outbreak. And China accusing the U.S. of crossing a very dangerous line after Secretary of State Mike Pompeo lifts restrictions on contact with Taiwan. We're live in Beijing with reaction. It is Monday, January 11th, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And good morning. I am Frank Holland in for Brian Sullivan. And here is how your money and the global markets are setting up their day. Stock futures right now, they're down big. The Dow. 210 points down. We're seeing the S&P down. Also, the NASDAQ, the tech index also down. The markets, they're coming off a solid start to the new trading year, despite that violent riot on Capitol Hill. All three major indices hitting new records with the Dow gaining more than one and a half percent. The S&P jumping by nearly two percent. The NASDAQ climbing nearly two and a half percent. But really, that is nothing compared to the Russell 2000, often considered the reopening index. You see it right here up. Last week, about 6%, right now down fractionally. This week, however, it's going to be all about earnings season kicking off as investors are going to get their final look at the impact of the COVID-19 outbreak on corporate profits in 2020. Big banks are going to kick things off, getting underway later in the week with some names like Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, PNC Financial, and BlackRock all reporting. Worldwide Exchange alum, Wilfred Frost, he's going to have all that later on this week. We also got to talk about Bitcoin this morning. Seems like that's all we talk about here on CNBC. Right now, down more than four and a half percent, down more than 12 percent since Friday after hitting a record high of forty two thousand dollars. The sell off in the cryptocurrency comes after their huge rally and perhaps some signals of profit taking from investors. Maybe something else with Bitcoin. It just seems like you never know. All right, let's go worldwide now. A mixed day in Asia, mainland Chinese stocks falling amid rising COVID-19 cases there. Much more on that in a moment. And taking a look at the early trade in Europe as well, right across the board, um, we're seeing some signs of some, uh, the market's kind of under pressure globally right now. The most impacted index we're seeing right now, the German DAX. Now to the latest on the ongoing COVID-19 outbreak and new concerns here at home as well as abroad. Bertha Combs, Coombs, excuse me, Bertha, has more on that. And your morning's other tough stories. It's Monday, Bertha. you got to give me a little bit of a slack. Good morning. 
It is Monday, Frank, and not a great Monday when it comes to headlines on coronavirus. We're facing more grim milestones amid this ongoing outbreak. Officials reporting a second straight day of record virus cases, with nearly 279,000 new cases being reported on Saturday. That surpasses the previous record set just the day before. 3,600 people dying of virus-related causes, down from Thursday's record 4,100 deaths. Meanwhile, China seeing a five-month high in new virus cases. The outbreak near the capital of Beijing comes as officials try to curb the spread ahead of next month's Lunar New Year holiday. Meantime, J.P. Morgan Chase and Citigroup are the latest major companies to halt political donations in the wake of last week's violent attack on Capitol Hill. A JPM spokesperson says the bank is pausing contributions for both Republicans and Democrats for at least the next six months. And Citigroup told employees in an internal note Friday it is also pausing PAC donations to all lawmakers during the first quarter. Meantime, Stripe has announced it will stop processing payments for President Trump's campaign website. The fintech company making that move, saying the president violated its policies against encouraging violence. It's not the first time the company has disabled accounts in the past in the wake of violent acts. So a lot of consequences when it comes to fundraising, Frank. Yeah, absolutely, Bertha. Uh, Stripe joining a number of other companies taking a stand against President Trump and what happened on Wednesday. Bertha Coombs, thank you very much. All right, sticking with the fallout facing President Trump over last weekend's violent attack on Capitol Hill, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says lawmakers plan to move forward with impeachment efforts if other attempts to remove the president from office fail. Tracy Potts joins us now from Washington. Good morning, Tracy. Frank, good morning. So with just nine days to go in this presidency, hundreds of lawmakers say they want the president out of office early. But how to do that? The 25th Amendment uh, argument seems unlikely to happen. Democrats are pushing for impeachment, but it's just not clear if there's enough time. The House of Representatives plans to introduce articles of impeachment this week. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi last night on 60 Minutes. This president is guilty of inciting insurrection. Uh, He has to pay a price for that. Multiple sources tell NBC that Vice President Pence is unlikely to use the 25th Amendment to remove President Trump. More than 200 House members and 37 senators want him to resign or be removed. Every minute and every hour that he is in office represents a clear and present danger. You know, Donald Trump may be in the Twitter penalty box, but he still has access to the nuclear codes. That's a frightening prospect. Some believe a trial can wait. Let's give uh, President-elect Biden uh, the 100 days he needs to get his agenda off uh, and running. Republicans are lining up against the president. The best way for our country, Chuck, is for the president to resign and go away as soon as possible. As Washington remembers the Capitol Police officer who died after last week's riot, D.C.'s mayor will ask President Trump to start inauguration security today. This inauguration preparation has to be different than any other inauguration uh, with only 10 days to go. NBC News has learned Capitol Police were warned of possible violence. Senior law enforcement officials tell NBC those warnings came from both the FBI and New York City Police, Frank. Tracy, thank you very much. Uh, A lot to unpack there. Definitely a continuing developing story out of D.C. We appreciate it. 
All right, back to the market. Stocks in the red following last week's strong gains to kick off the new trading year. And our next guest says more volatility could be ahead as headwinds for the markets and the economy remain. Luke Lloyd is an investment strategist with Strategic Wealth Partners. Luke, thanks for being here. Good morning, Frank. Glad to be here. So, Luke, I I just got to ask you, um, what would be the catalyst for some of the volatility that you're forecasting? I mean, I'm just going to read off what happened last week. Markets are near record highs despite the variant, slow vaccine rollout, the riot on Capitol Hill, um, a number of issues, lower job numbers than expected. What's going to create that volatility if we haven't seen it already in the first week and the markets have actually showed some gains? Well, listen, the markets are trading at pretty large valuations right now. And all those things that you mentioned could contribute to that volatility. But for 2021, let me make it clear that there are two variables that go into 2021 that are going to make 2021. And that is the Federal Reserve and the federal government. So when it comes to the Federal Reserve, they've already came out and said over the next three years, they're going to keep interest rates low, and that's going to prop up equities and prop up the economy. They're also going to continue to buy bonds in stocks, or in stocks like Apple and all these large companies, which is also going to keep the economy afloat. Then on the other side of things, you have the federal government. And right now, we see that the Democrats have the House, they have the Senate, they have the presidency. So that means more additional stimulus is being printed as well. So that is also going to keep things afloat. One of the big headwinds to the markets over the next coming years is the raise in corporate taxes. As we know, since the Democrats do control everything, the rise in corporate taxes is likely over the next three years. But that being said, with the government printing more money and handing out more stimulus, that is also going to offset the corporate taxes. So there's a lot of volatility and a lot of things that could happen in 2021. And the markets are up 13% from pre-pandemic levels. If you would have told me beforehand that in a pandemic, when we have job loss and a lot of issues with the economy, that we are up 13% from the pre-pandemic levels and the 68% off the lows, I'd be amazed. I would not believe you. But that's where we're at right now. Yeah, you know, look, I think a lot of us are amazed right now. So here's what else is rising. Bond yields, the 10-year hitting its highest level since I think about March um, in response to to President-elect Biden saying he's going to add some of that additional stimulus and which you considered a factor for volatility. The the Democrats having the White House and both chambers of commerce, uh, Congress, excuse me, appear to be actually boosting those bond yields. So what's your take on that? I think in the long term, over the next couple of years at least, I think yields are going to remain low. I mean, we have, like I said, the Federal Reserve that would keep rates at 0%. If not go lower, I mean, I'm not saying we're going to go negative, but I think it might be a possibility considering that we still have a ton of issues in the economy that need to be fixed. And going forward, like I said, we are seeing job loss. Small business is hurting right now. I think we're going to see a permanent hurt uh, or loss to these small business owners and these jobs in the small business industry. Before the pandemic, a small business was the backbone of the American economy. I don't know if it's going to be that way going forward. Yeah, look, so I, do I, think I don't think any of us know if that's the way it's going to be going forward. But before we let you go, so we are running a bit out of time. Can you give us some picks? I know you're, you're bullish on tech and healthcare. Can you give us one stock in tech and one in healthcare that you think is primed to take advantage of the environment we're seeing in 2021? Yeah, absolutely. So going forward, I think Alibaba is a great stock right now. We're seeing at a discount 10 to 15 percent off a couple weeks ago, about 25 to 30 percent off its highs. Right now, it's got a lot of headwinds ahead and a lot of um, you know, news around it, surrounding it with Jack Ma, you know, being missing, but he's not necessarily missing. He's just laying, laying low right now. You know, they're having the investigation right now with um, you know, the monopolistic practices or antitrust practices. But Alibaba is China's bread and butter, and they're not going to do anything to hurt the company. It's their way to compete against the world. It's their way to compete against the United States. It's their way to compete against Europe. I think that's a good stock moving forward. It's essentially the Chinese Amazon. I think that's a stock you have to pick up at these levels. In regards to healthcare, Ligon Pharmaceuticals, LGND, they said 
essentially make what goes into these COVID vaccines and COVID um, tests, and they allow um, essentially uh, the the the, uh, the, uh, the the product that we have essentially allows these vaccines to be able to be um, uh, taken into the body, which is very good going forward as well. And that's going to maintain over the next two or three years because COVID's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to go away all of a sudden uh, just because we have a vaccine. All right, Luke Lloyd, thanks for your uh, your insight. And uh, futures down today, a lot like your Cleveland Browns. We're going to see if they're going to make a comeback right. too. Right. I'm actually a Steelers fan. So What? Uh, <laughs> I am. I, I was not happy about yesterday. <laughs> we'll talk about that offline, man. Thanks for your insight. All right. Thank you. When we come back, much more on that ongoing fight against COVID-19 as officials look to ramp up efforts to get the public vaccinated following a slow start. Plus, Eunice Yoon is live in Beijing with more on the increasing tensions between China and the U.S. following Secretary Pompeo's latest moves on Taiwan and the good, the bad and the ugly of a critical holiday shopping season for retailers just trying to stay afloat. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Almost a month after the first COVID-19 vaccination here in the U.S., the rollout is continuing to fall short of the targets put in place by Operation Warp Speed. They've been hoping to get 20 million people vaccinated by the end of 2020. According to the CDC, the U.S. has distributed 22 million doses of the COVID-19 vaccine, but only 6.7 million shots have actually been given. That comes as the U.S. has surpassed 2.2 million cases in just the first 10 days of 2021, Really, to put that in perspective, last year, it took the U.S. 90 days to reach that same level. The U.S. also reporting a new record number of cases on Saturday. Let's bring in Dr. Carlos Del Rio, Executive Associate Dean of Emory University School of Medicine. Dr. Del Rio, thanks for being here. Good morning. Thanks for being with me. So, Dr. Del Rio, we just kind of broke down the numbers there. Uh, about 22 million, uh, excuse me, 20 million vaccines distributed, only 6.7 million actually given as shots. That's about a third of them. What percentage of that do you think is due to logistical issues that have been well documented? What percentage to some apparently unexpected vaccine hesitancy? I think it's a combination of both. I think you have clearly a lot of logistical issues. You know, the government, federal government put the vaccine down to the states and then sort of told the states it's up to you to distribute and to, and to administer. And there are two things happening right now, Frank. Number one, you have hospitals are overwhelmed. So nurses are taking care of patients in the hospital. There's not enough nurses in hospitals. To then go and vaccinate, and healthcare systems have, and healthcare, public health departments have been underfunded, and therefore in public health departments, um, you either have to be, you know, you're either doing COVID testing or you're doing COVID vaccination, but there's not personnel to do both, so you have a lot of logistical issues. But you add to that some degree of hesitancy, and we simply need to do a better job communicating to people about the benefits of the vaccine versus the, the theoretical risk at this point in time. So what is your take on the vaccine hesitancy, including among frontline healthcare workers? We spoke to a number of health uh, systems all across the country, and we've heard from different ones. Now, of course, this is not a national stat, but we've heard from different ones that about half of their healthcare workers are willing to take that shot now, and the other half are either saying no or they want to wait. Well, I think that what you have to do is really understand the reasons why they want to wait. I spent uh, last Saturday in my healthcare system administering shots and I actually went up to the nurses stations and talked to nurses and some of them were not necessarily hesitant they just had some doubts they wanted questions answered and I, when I spent time answering their questions and clarifying the issues they were willing to take the vaccine so I think you know a lot of people have questions and I think it's okay to have questions but we need to be able to answer them and of course it takes a lot of time it's really a one-on-one -on -one effort you know just just telling people it's okay you need to take it is not enough you really have to listen to people you have to hear what they have to say 
have to hear their concerns. And then, you know, after you do that, they'll be more likely to take the shot. But obviously, that's going to take some time. It's not immediate that people will say yes. Yeah, you know, Dr. Del Rio, I think people do have a lot of questions. I think one of the big questions that people have is what stat should we all be paying attention to? Early on in the pandemic, we paid attention to the mortality rate. We were told that was really the key to seeing how bad this epidemic was. And now we've paid much more attention to the case rate or the number of cases per day while the mortality rate has declined. So which one do you pay attention to? and Which one do you do you use to assess just how bad things are? I mean, I think it's a combination of things. Three things that I pay attention to is the number of new diagnoses. But obviously, that's influenced by how much testing is done. I look at deaths. But I also look at hospitalizations. At this point in the pandemic, we have over 130,000 Americans who are currently in the hospital with COVID. That is an, that's an incredible number. In some states, one out of every three beds is, is occupied by somebody with COVID. And that, to me, is really a concern because, you know, you start looking not only of the overwhelming and of hospitals for, for COVID, but it's actually for everything. If you have a stroke, if you have a heart attack, there may not be available for you. And that's a problem, right? Well, Dr. Del Rio, we appreciate your time and good luck with your efforts to fight this, this pandemic. We appreciate it. All right. Still Thanks. on deck here on Worldwide Exchange. We have much more coming up. More on the text on text crackdown on President Trump targeting his ability to spread misinformation online. Worldwide Exchange is back in just a moment. Welcome back. China's state media is blasting the U.S. after Secretary of State Mike Pompeo over the weekend said he was lifting restrictions on contacts between U.S. officials and their counterparts in Taiwan. Eunice Yoon joins us now with the very latest on this. Good morning, Eunice. Good morning, Frank. Well, one of the headlines in an official paper was that uh, this move breaks China's bottom line. And the reason for that is the background is that Beijing believes that it um, is the only one that can speak for Taiwan, and that Taiwan is part of its territory. So under this new U.S. move, Taiwan and U.S. officials and politicians would be able to uh, meet at and have higher-level exchanges also in official settings, including the White House. So the Chinese Foreign Ministry uh, condemned the move, said that it was going to resolutely fight back any attempt to, quote, sabotage its interests. Taiwan, though, across the straits, um, had the foreign minister tweeting he was grateful for what he called a big thing in the elevation of ties to a global partnership. Now, to further that relationship, Taiwan this week is going to be hosting the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Kelly Kraft, um, who's going to be arriving there on Wednesday. In Taiwan, the politicians there are cheering this, uh, saying that um, this is a very good thing because Taiwan officially is, has not been allowed to take part in international organizations uh, because of China. Um, and, uh, you know, but meanwhile, uh, the Chinese have a totally different view of this, uh, Frank, as you could imagine, and have said that this trip is part of the Trump administration's, quote, final madness in its China approach. Uh, interesting quote there from the uh, Chinese government, the president, uh, excuse me, the Trump administration's final madness. Do you see the tension from this decision by the Trump administration and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo? actually carrying over to the Biden administration that takes over in just a few days. 
Right. Well, uh, that's definitely the sense here, especially when you read the state press, that uh, there is a concern that what that what the Chinese are seeing is a Trump administration doing pretty much whatever it can in order to try to make it very, very difficult for the Biden administration to change course if it decided to do so. So, uh, for example, on Chinese state TV, um, there was a quote about how uh, this latest uh, decision by uh, Pompeo was uh, a way for uh, to create a Taiwan bonfire, it said, that Biden would have to put out. And then we're also seeing um, uh, the, the Chinese move in other areas, such as business, to try to protect itself from what it sees as as increased tensions, or at least the likelihood of that. For example, over the weekend, uh, China unveiled new regulations that essentially put more pressure on U.S. companies um, because it, it, they, they basically are uh, banning Chinese companies as well as citizens to comply with foreign laws and foreign sanctions. So uh, trying to make things much, much more complicated for uh, U.S. businesses that want to continue to do business in China. Frank? Eunice, uh, U.S.-Chinese relations continue to be interesting, to say the least. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, let's get a check on the morning's other headlines. NBC's Francis Rivera is in New York with the very latest. Good morning, Francis. Hey, Frank. Good to see you. Good morning to you. Yeah, we're starting with an update on that Indonesian plane crash that killed all 62 people on board. Authorities say they have pinpointed the area, the plane's black boxes. Parts from the Boeing 737-500 were found about 75 feet below the Java Sea. Divers also recovered body parts along with scraps of metal and pieces of fuselage with aircraft registration parts. Officials are still investigating the cause of that crash. Now to a daring jailbreak in California. Six inmates are on the loose from the Merced County Jail southeast of San Francisco after staff say the prisoners used a makeshift rope to climb down from the roof Saturday night. They are considered armed and dangerous. At an AFC North showdown capped off a crazy slate of wildcard weekend games. It was the Cleveland Browns in their first playoff game since 2003 that struck early. They struck often, racking up 28 points in the first quarter. Down by 25 at the half, the Steelers would try to mount a comeback and came within 12, but for every touchdown Ben Roethlisberger threw, he had a pick to go with it. Big Ben tossed four interceptions on the night, and for the second straight week, the Browns beat the Steelers 48 to 37 from Monday morning, Frank. Those are your headlines. Yeah, that was a great game, Francis. So I, both of us worked up in Boston. I knew it, during yeah. those times you were pressured to pretend you were a Patriots fan. Do you actually have a, a real team that you root for? Let me just tell you, by default, my husband is a hardcore Broncos fan, so I'm going that way. But, yeah, I'm telling you what, what was more painful, though, when we both worked in Boston, it was, you know, having to get excited for those Red oh. Sox all those years. Yeah. i tell you what, you, that yeah. was tougher. <laughs> you had to pretend up there because if you didn't, well, we know what happens up there. Yeah. Francis, thank you very much. We appreciate sure thing. it. All Have right, still week. on deck. The latest on the growing calls in Washington to remove President Trump from office. Eamon Javers will have the latest on where that movement stands with just days left until President-elect Biden is sworn in. Worldwide Exchange, back in a moment. Red arrows to start the week. Futures point to a lower open after Wall Street closed at record highs on Friday. Washington Watch, the House expected to begin an effort to remove President Trump from office. And the president also facing pressure from big tech as a number of companies. They pull the plug on the president's access to their platforms. It is Monday, January 11th, 2021. Hard to believe it's only the second week of the year. But you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. 
All right, welcome back. I'm Frank Collin in for Big Papa, Brian Sullivan. And here is how your money and investments look right now as we're halfway through the 5 a.m. hour. Stocks, stock futures, they are down this morning after a big week for the markets. The Dow down 176 points, up from its lows earlier in the morning. Still, we're seeing across the board all of them down. The Nasdaq down about uh, 51 points as well. The markets are coming off a solid start to the new trading year, despite that violent riot on Capitol Hill. All three major indices hitting new records, with the Dow gaining more than one and a half percent. The S&P jumping by nearly two percent and the Nasdaq climbing by nearly two and a half percent. But really, that is nothing compared to the Russell 2000, often seen as the recovery index, up nearly six percent. This week will be all about earnings season kicking off. We also have to talk about Bitcoin this morning. It's been the story of 2021. Right now, we're looking at it. It's down almost 5%, down more than 12% since Friday after hitting a record high of $42,000 last week. The sell-off in cryptocurrencies come after a huge rally and perhaps some signals of profit-taking from investors. Now to multiple developing stories out of Washington, including the House beginning an effort to remove President Trump from office. Eamon Javers, he joins us live with the very latest. Good morning, Eamon. Yeah, good morning, Frank. We now know how this impeachment effort in the House is going to begin. It's going to start as soon as today. What's less clear, Frank, is just how this impeachment effort is going to end if it makes it all the way to the Senate. The timing, uh, the support for it, all of that very much unclear right now. But Nancy Pelosi is sending a letter last night to her colleagues explaining how this is going to work, saying that she's going to introduce a resolution today calling on Vice President Mike Pence to move forward with the 25th Amendment, declaring the president to be unable to perform his duties and removing him from office. Now, that resolution that they're going to vote on uh, doesn't force Pence to do anything. They're simply calling on him to move forward with the 25th Amendment. Uh, they're saying he needs to mobilize the cabinet and activate that 25th Amendment. Uh, if the vice president does not respond in 24 hours, Pelosi says, uh, then they will move forward with bringing impeachment resolu- an impeachment resolution to the House floor, uh, presumably on the back of Democratic votes. Uh, that resolution could pass in the House. We'll see whether uh, and to what extent there's Republican support for it. Uh, And then the question becomes what happens in the United States Senate, because it's not at all clear the Senate can move as fast as that. They would have to hold a trial under the Constitution for the president, present evidence uh, and allow the president uh, to send up a delegation to defend himself uh, in the Senate. All of that takes time. uh, And Senate Republican leaders who still control the chamber uh, for the time being are saying uh, that they don't see how that can possibly move forward before January 19th, just one day before Joe Biden is expected to be sworn in. So we could see an impeachment effort that begins before the president takes office and ends after he takes office. Why is that significant? Well, in a majority vote in the Senate, if it gets that far, uh, the senator's can vote to block Donald Trump uh, from ever holding office in the United States again as part of an impeachment, if it gets all that all the way down there, down the line there, Frank. But as I say, we know how this is going to begin, less clear how it's going to play out. Yeah, that that impeachment process would also uh, impact President Trump's uh, living stipend for the rest of his life as also security detail. So a lot of ramifications to an impeachment. Um, Let's also talk about the social media impact of everything that we saw last week. Parler, the popular app with Trump supporters officially being shut down as big tech cracks down on the president. What does this really mean for President Trump having a voice online? 
Well, look, I mean, the Twitter decision on Friday night uh, was enormous for the, the end game of the Trump presidency. Twitter has become the way the president engages uh, with his followers, with the media, with others in the United States. Uh, and the president is simply blocked from using that. Parler also, you know, major corporations, including, including Amazon Web Services, are deciding they simply don't want to be uh, attached to an insurrectionist movement that's calling for violence in the United States. We saw people on Parler who are uh, linked to the president's movement here uh, calling for the execution of Mike Pence. Uh, that, that kind of thing is not the sort of thing that uh, these large corporations want to be involved with. Uh, they're shutting it down, distancing themselves from it. Uh, and, and there is some analysis, over, there has been some analysis over the years uh, in terms of ISIS and other terrorist-type groups uh, that shutting down their access to social media does shut down their ability to put their ideas out and their ability to recruit new members. So uh, presumably the extremists will be, uh, you know, sort of handcuffed by this. Uh, but the question is, overall, you know, how long will all of these efforts last? And in, in practical reality, how will they be enforced? And, and that seems to be an open question right now, Frank. Well, a lot developing down there in D.C., Eamon. We're sure that you're going to be all over it. We really appreciate it. Thank you again. All right, much more on the president and big tech. Joining me now is Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher. Sarah, thanks for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So I, I think we got to jump right into this. Um, the president is obviously banned from most social media apps, but those apps, they've definitely benefited from the president's presence on their apps in the past. So who's more hurt by this? Is the president more hurt by it or are some of these apps more hurt by it, losing followers and some of the attention that the president draws? Oh, I think the president is more hurt by it. I think these apps kind of saw this day as being inevitable. Obviously, the Capitol siege has expedited their actions on Donald Trump, but many were planning on taking action on him after he left office. You'll recall Twitter and Facebook both said that they gave him special treatment while he was president for national security reasons. They wanted the president of the United States to have a megaphone in case he needed to tweet something about a national emergency, national security, etc. But both of those apps had said that that sort of immunity may go away once he actually left office. And so I see this as being something that was inevitable. I think the tech platforms, because they're united here, almost every single one, we have a running list on Axios, is taking action, means that not a single one is going to get called out for going against him. Really, the president losing his massive social media megaphone is the big loser here. Yeah, you know, I don't think any of these social media sites are going to get called out for banning the president. But we're seeing this morning Twitter's down about six percent. So there's certainly an investor impact um, going forward. Does the president have a different option to access his followers and the people that want to hear from him online? I mean, Friendster doesn't exist anymore. MySpace, I'm pretty sure, got shut down. So are there are other avenues that the president can go to. Almost every company, Frank, is banning him. And that goes to campaign marketing email platforms. That's online stores. It's payment processors. So no, he really doesn't have much of an option. His digital director tried to create an account that he could use to message to people. That got shut down immediately. So he's really stuck here. But to your point about the markets, one of the things that this incident exposes these companies to is perhaps more conversations around regulations of platforms. A lot of people think that companies like Twitter and Facebook were too slow to act against the president. Meanwhile, we're having conversations on Capitol Hill about what it looks like to have content moderation rules be changed, Section 230 of the Communications uh, Act. And so it would really come down to when it, you see that stock moving, it's not just user engagement, but it exposes them to more regulation, which could hurt the companies long term.
So, Sarah, back in September, uh, Attorney General Bill Barr, he actually had a statement after the president met with state AGs to talk about social media networks. Here's what he said. Congress should hold online platforms accountable when they unlawfully censor speech and when they knowingly facilitate egregious criminal activity online. Um, obviously, following what we saw on Wednesday, are these social media sites actually just doing what the attorney general asked them to do to take accountability? And do you see them having any more fallout from Congress or maybe even other federal regulators for allowing some of these messages to get out to begin with? Well, I mean, of course, each side politically is going to play this the way that they want it. Attorney General Bill Barr is going to play this from the conservative lens, which is you're censoring us. This is Orwellian, et cetera. Of course, people on the left are going to say you're giving people that are dangerous a platform. So everyone wants to crack down on tech companies that don't really alter the rules in their favor. Tech companies have been regulated by Congress. You'll remember SESTA-FOSTA, which was regulation around sex trafficking, did get passed. And so they have been held account by Congress before. I think what you're going to see now is there's going to be new conversations on Capitol Hill around how do we introduce amendments, not just the Communications Decency Act, but also to other forms of the regulation that would help keep these companies account for things like terrorism, domestic terrorism, people congregating online to do harm. That's where I think they have the most exposure. Limiting people's political speech is always going to be tough, but holding them to account when people are planning riots where there are things like guns and weaponry involved is something where I think there's going to be much more bipartisan support on Capitol Hill to go after them. Sarah Fisher from Axios, busy day for you ahead, I'm very sure. Thank you very much for all your insights. All right, coming up, so much. how new COVID-related lockdowns in Europe could hit U.S. retailers hard. But first, as we had to break some of your morning's other top headlines. The PGA is canceling plans to play its major championship at Trump Bedminster in, Bedminster in New Jersey next year. Major U.S. banks are delisting hundreds of Hong Kong-listed structured products linked to Chinese companies named on a U.S. investment blacklist. The U.S. rules that go into effect today. And Apple and Hyundai are reportedly set to team up on, aut on autonomous electric cars. A newspaper in Seoul says a partnership agreement will be signed by March, with production starting sometime around 2024. On Friday, Hyundai said it was in talks with Apple before walking that back a bit, saying it's, in, it's actually working on potential partnerships with multiple companies developing autonomous electric vehicles. Stay tuned. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And a live look at New York's Times Square. It is 543 here on the U.S. East Coast. A quieter Times Square than you would normally see, but could that all change in 2021? We'll have to watch out for it. All right, it was a good news, bad news holiday season for U.S. retailers. A surge in online shopping helping offset the drop in traffic to brick-and-mortar stores. Clothing chains and department stores, they really felt the most pain, and they could face even more challenges. As lockdown measures to curb the spread of the COVID-19 vaccine, excuse me, COVID-19 outbreak here, and especially in Europe, clamp down even more on sales. Let's get more insight now with Stacey Widless, president and chief international store hunter at SW Retail Advisors. Stacey, thanks for being here. Hey, Frank. So, Stacey, let's start off with the companies that are going to feel the most pain from these lockdowns. We said it was chain stores and department stores. What U.S. brands have the most exposure to uh, the U.K. and to Europe? 
So Frank, you know, it's interesting because I think U.S. investors sometimes forget how global so many of these brands are. So if you look at PVH, which is Tommy Hilfiger, Calvin Klein, 30% exposure revenues. If you look at VF Corp, you know, 40%, Guess, Fossil, Ralph Lauren, Capri, 20 to 30% exposure to Europe. So that's a big deal here, especially considering the UK, um, you know, for Capri and Ralph is half of their European business. We've been only open two weeks since the beginning of November. Stores have been shut. Germany, stores are shut since the middle of the month. The biggest apparel market in Europe. So, you know, you're going you're gonna to see a big impact there. So, Stacey, you said we. I'm assuming that you're in London, where I know you spend a lot of your time. Um, what are you hearing from people there? Are they adopting the e-commerce like we here are here in the U.S., or is there some resistance to that? Is there a different culture? Because a lot of us are just buying three of the same thing, trying them on, and sending back the other two. They are adopting as fast as they can. And, you know, it's different. For example, in France, the online penetration is really, really low. So, you know, you look at a mall operator like Clepier and say, okay, well, you know, if there's going to be this huge shift to online shopping, the physical is even more at risk because they're so underpenetrated. But you're seeing the same thing as you're seeing in the States, which is curbside pickup, uh, buy online pickup in store. It's been a little bit slower here for sure. But, you know, the adoption is going in, in the right direction. What about luxury retailers? Here in the U.S., we've seen a lot of uptrading during the pandemic. People, I guess, maybe treating themselves. Uh, is the same thing going on in Europe? And could that potentially help retailers? Luxury has been on fire, despite what's been going on over the past year. And I think it's a great example of consumers. They want to spend, they want to get out and anything that they can get their hands on that uplifts them, assuming they have a certain amount of income is happening. And I can speak to Europe when the stores closed for the short time that they did, the lines were insane. The first day in the UK were locked down, lifted. It was an hour wait to buy an LVMH bag. And everybody in that line was purchasing. So you're absolutely seeing Montclair, Tiffany, which is now owned LVMH. All of those businesses are very healthy despite the lockdown. Well, certainly an LVMH bag's worth the wait, right, Stacey? No, I'm just joking. Absolutely. I, I have no idea either way. Two hours. Um, <laughs> let's talk footwear and apparel. Uh, Nike and Adidas, are they equally impacted by all this? Because, I mean, generally, we all know our sneaker sizes and we know what we, our sizes for things that we wear to work out. That seems like that would be the easiest thing to transition to e-commerce. It has been, and Nike has certainly been a leader. And if you think about, um, again, as you said, we know your size, so there's less returns. And Nike's business has been incredibly healthy. And actually, it's been up in Europe, again, despite stores being closed here. And the other thing you have to think about is what Nike's been doing so well is saying, looking at their wholesale distribution and saying, listen, you know, we're only going to keep the best partners and everybody else we're getting rid of who typically discounts, and they're going more direct themselves, which is a higher margin. And then finally, I would say Foot Locker. So, you know, Foot Locker's comps have been incredibly strong in Europe and the U.S. And now all of a sudden, you know, they've been impacted by the inability to return merchandise to their vendors. Now that's opening up. So another margin proposition here. So footwork category, huge winner, continues to be so. Uh, while we're talking about specialty retailers, let's touch on two brands I honestly don't have a lot of personal experience with, but are obviously on fire, uh, L Brands and also Lululemon. How are they impacted by all this? And again, do you see consumers being able to make that switch to e-commerce buying? Because these are things that are kind of stretchy um, or also very personal in the case of L Brands. And I think people kind of know their size when it comes to their intimates. 
They do. And, and L brands is, you know, it's, it's an absolute turnaround story. And I think the big driver here while in store, same store sales have, have been down over 20%. They're moving in the right direction online, but the key driver for all of these retail stocks right now is margins. So there have been less discounts because inventory is so lean because everybody clamped down on ordering in the beginning of the year. So now some brands are raising prices. They're selling full price at a lower revenue base, but investors seem to be okay with that for now. And Lululemon is just, I mean, they, this couldn't be a better environment for them to stay at home, you know, no more hard pants, thing of the past. And also they're doing more outerwear, higher ticket. And as I've talked about on your show before, they're doing larger sizes finally for women. So that is really the next driver of that stock here. Yeah, stretchy pants. Joe Kernan's tried to convert me. I don't know if I'm quite ready, or at least the bosses here at CNBC are quite ready. Stretchy pants. (laughs) Stacey Whitless, thank you again. We appreciate it. To see you, Frank. All right, on deck, the Dow, the S&P, the NASDAQ, and Dow Transports all posting record-closing highs on Friday. So how should an investor be positioned? As we start this new week, we got a few ideas coming up next. And if you haven't already subscribed to our new podcast, Worldwide Exchange, every day in audio form. If you miss us, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. And we will be right back. All right, welcome back. Stocks looking to kick off the new trading week a bit under pressure, following a really solid start to the new year. With markets continuing to climb to new records, our next guest says... It's all about the next stimulus package when it comes to momentum. Delano Sapporo is the founder of and financial advisor with New Street Advisors. Uh, Delano, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Frank. Thanks for having me. So let's just get right into it, man. Um, we saw all the, the, all the indices rise last week. What are you seeing this week with the, the prospect of stimulus? President Biden coming out making a very strong statement about stimulus. Are all the gains priced in or, or is it more upside here? I think there's more upside in the near term. Um, I think long term, though, investors have to be optimistic, uh, cautiously optimistic. So as we mentioned, I think one of the bigger catalysts is, you know, that third relief package that's been promised uh, by certain lawmakers. I think investors are, are banking on a lot of that. And that's where a lot of the momentum has been, especially when you saw it last week. And so I want to hear more commentary, more more actual details around that specific, uh, if we're going to get that through. And it looks like what happened last week as far as, you know, lawmakers and Dems control of both chambers, it's looking optimistic. I think that's what investors were banking on. So that's something we have to watch for. But if you're an investor, it's to be optimistic, uh, but also cautious when it comes to, you know, what's going forward. Because a lot of the good news has been priced in. So if there is a correction, that's a good chance for investors to pick at stocks that they think are going to be going higher long term. All right. Cautiously optimistic. But there have to be there has to be some sectors or perhaps stocks that you're very bullish on. Can you give us one uh, for in two different sectors that you feel really good about? Yes. Roku. This is one that had kind of been flat under the radar as far as, you know, the popularity. But it's been performing really, really well. You saw last week that they bought the assets of Quibi, um, the failed uh, platform, and they bought them for pennies on the dollar. So they're making that push into content which, as we know, in this day and age, content is super important. Where eyeballs are is where investors, where the market, a lot of people are going. So with them making that push to content, with already having a strong hold in the streaming wars, with being the, a hardware platform that all the streaming wars are licensing to, now they're making that push to content. I think that's really strong and bodes really well. They were up uh, about 3% on Friday on that, that news. I also like Clove Healthcare. So Clove finished the reverse merger, the SPAC, um, Clove Healthcare, the Medicare-focused health tech insurer, um, and that's another place that I like. The tech and healthcare spaces are really strong right now. I think they're going to be marching higher. 
Makes sense. Um, what do you make of the Russell 2000 being the best performer last week? A lot of our guests call that the reopening index. Is that a sign that perhaps tech is slowing down? I, I wouldn't call it a sign. Um, I think we're seeing optimistic on both sides of that. So you saw the rotation back and forth a lot in the indexes last week. And we've talked about hedging into some of those reopening plays. Um, and we've talked about, I think, the vaccine and, and the optimists on the vaccine is looking for a late summer, early fall, where, you know, we'll have a lot of more people vaccinated. And so if you're a long-term investor, maybe people are hedging into those plays heavier. Um, I don't think it's a rotation. It's a sign that tech is slowing down at this point. I think we still have some more near side, upside in tech. And, and you should still be hedged long-term uh, for reopening. But I don't think it's a sign that tech is slowing down. All right, circling back to healthcare, um, we're all very hopeful that the vaccine will bring an end to this pandemic sometime in 2021, or at least bring back some sense of normalcy. How does that impact the healthcare sector and especially your pick? Yep. So right now we've been picked, you know, in, in Clove and, and also in uh, ETFs that are, you know, more broad based. Um, and I think that if you're an investor, you have to have a exposure to those areas, healthcare and what we've done, what we've seen with the vaccine and how that's been rolled out in a rather quick manner. Now, we know that usually vaccine takes much longer to be distributed, to be made, to be produced. And what, you know, we saw with companies that were able to do that so, so, so quickly plays to a part that you have to have some sort of position in these healthcare companies are doing a lot of great things. And they're going to do a lot of great things going forward. So as an investor, you should want exposure to those areas. And I want exposure to those areas for myself and for my clients. All right. Before we let you go, uh, futures down today. The Dow looking like it's having the biggest downside. What do you make of it after a week where we saw almost all the, or all the indices hit record highs? Ah, profit taking. I think it's going to be profit taking here. Um, and that, that that makes sense. I think it's healthy uh, for sometimes when we're, we're, we're at high asset valuations to have some profit taking for people uh, that are maybe in the short term game or maybe trading. Uh, but for long term investors, there's nothing to really you know get too worried about. Profit taking correction is, is a normal part of the game and normal part of the markets. All right. Any other last words before we let you go? Um, let's go Roll Tide tonight. Um, and Frank, thank you for having me on Roll Tide. I'm rooting for them tonight. And I really appreciate you guys on, on CNBC. Delano sneaking in that Crimson Tide support. We appreciate it, man. Have a good one. All right. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box is coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.